What's up, everybody? Hey, give it up for uh, give it up for the counselors and students that did the pond comp. That's some good entertainment right there. Who's the uh, Who's the one that landed on their neck? Was it you? It was the Fresno State guy. No, who was it? Give it up for a good neck flop, everybody. That was great. Well, it's day two at camp. Three if you count the day you got here. Have you had a good time so far? Hey, quick question. How many of you, this is your first time at a camp at all? Like, this is your first camp experience ever. Yep. Real high. Okay. Just a couple of you. So, I remember my first camp. I was in seventh grade. And uh, the church that we would kind of go to a couple times a year had a camp and uh, just in case. Okay, I'm going to use this one. All right, how's that? Cool? So in seventh grade, I went to this camp. And it was a winter camp, so it was just a two-day camp. And a friend of mine invited me because of the church that we were going to. And, uh, and so we show up at this camp. And we go, and it's amazing. Like, they had paintball and, and food and fun and, like, all the things, a chapel with a speaker. It was incredible. But that camp was the first time in my life that I fell in love. Yeah. Like, I had a camp crush. And this girl, this girl just so happened to be someone that was in my science class at school. So I knew her. And I remember at camp, um, I remember at camp, like, I don't even really know exactly how it happened, as I'm sure, like, most of you wouldn't know how it happened, but we were like a thing. Like, we came home from camp a thing. There was no hand-holding, there was no public display of affection, but there was kind of like this nod that was like, we're cool, we're cool. And so camp ends on a Sunday, and on Monday we go to school, and I was so excited to see her in science class, to like you know, relink up with my first time ever girlfriend. And we get to science class, and she passes me a note. Yeah. Yep. I know. Hey, I think you guys might call it the Riz. Apparently, in seventh grade. All right? Yeah. Okay. I really... I, I really sincerely hope I use that word right and it's not something bad, okay? So, all right, okay, okay. My age is showing. So in seventh grade, she passes me a note and the note says, Dear Corey, meet me at the flagpole after school. <laughs> yeah, yep. Now, I'm not saying I had game, but I got a note. You know what I mean? So, so school ends, and, and, you know, I had to play it cool, so I didn't necessarily run to the flagpole, but I wasn't quite walking, you know? And so I get to the flagpole, and off in the distance on the soccer field, I see her and a guy walking towards me. And I was like, that's cool. She brought a friend. I think this isn't going to go how I thought it was going to go. And so she comes up to the flagpole, and she says, hey, it's over. I'm with him now. And they walked away holding hands. 
broke my heart. It took me, it took me like a day, it took me like a day to recover. There's two points to the story. Two points to the story. The first point is, do not date at your age. There's no need. It's a waste of time. All right? It's a waste of time. Your tender, sweet little hearts aren't ready to be broken the way my heart was broken. You can't handle it. I couldn't handle it, okay? So, so I know you got eyes for someone else here. Just cut it out. It's a distraction, and God wants all of you this week, all right? All right, that's the first thing. The second thing is, and this is a, a more serious one. second thing is, I think that I lived a lot of my youth and young adult heart thinking that that's what God would do to me. I think I lived a lot of my youth and young adult heart thinking that God was just some type of camp relationship who would leave me alone when life got real, who would leave me alone when I needed him. Because let's be honest, life's kind of easy at camp, isn't it? Like this isn't the most difficult thing you've ever done. Every meal is a buffet, you're with your friends, you get to see counselors land on their necks in the water, like it was awesome, right? It's all cool. And in addition to that, we're, we're singing songs of worship to God. In addition to that, we've had some just incredible times, uh, you with your counselors, with your friends, opening God's word, praying, talking. I think if I'm honest, for me, at your age and thereafter, God became something that I just did at camp. And I didn't quite have the faith or the trust in God that I could take him with him, that I could take him with me rather, that I could walk with him, that I could trust him, that I could rely on him when life got hard. I don't know the kind of things that you guys have faced, but life has a way of sending all kinds of trials and tribulation and sometimes persecution our way as people. Trials like death. I'll never forget when I was 10 years old, there was a knock on the door in the middle of the night. It was 1 a.m., and a police officer came to the door. My mom came and, and woke me up, woke me and my sisters up. And, and all I can really quite remember from that evening is that she had a towel in her hands. And she was just crying into the towel. We got to the hospital and I soon learned that my brother had been in a horrible car accident. And he would die the next morning. I had no idea at 10 years old that there was a God who could have walked with me through that pain and through that hardship. I remember it wasn't just a few years after that that the family company went bankrupt. My parents had to sell the house. I had to leave my school, my friends. We had to essentially start life all over again. The loneliness that I felt, the pain in my family around the dinner table, it would be so awkward sometimes because people handle frustration in different ways. I had no idea at your age that there was a God who promised to be with us when things got hard. What I want to do tonight is I want, to, I want to show you in the Bible where that concept comes from. That, that there is a God who loves you, that there is a God who is for you, and that there is a God who promises to walk with you through life's many troubles. God is dependable. God is trustworthy. And God is ever-present. The Bible teaches that God doesn't leave us alone, that God is with those of us who have a relationship with him. God is with us now and forevermore we have access to the presence of God, okay? And so we're going to go to Daniel chapter 3. And as you turn to Jan Daniel chapter 3, I want to just highlight something incredible that happens in Daniel 2, okay? So turn to Daniel 3, as you do. 
we're going to talk about Daniel 3, or Daniel 2 as you go to Daniel 3, okay? Because there's some incredible stuff happening in this narrative, some of which you saw play out this morning on stage in the skit. In Daniel chapter 2, in Daniel chapter 2, two, two incredible things happen, okay? In Daniel chapter 2, two incredible things happen. The first thing that happens in Daniel chapter 2, in verses 17 through 18, we see this happen. Daniel 2, 17 through 18, we see that after Daniel has, has kind of been given a purpose in his exile to be an interpreter of dreams for King Nebuchadnezzar, it says in verse 17 that then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends not, might not be executed with the rest of the wise men in Babylon. You see, what happens in Daniel 2 is King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and this dream freaks him out. And so what Nebuchadnezzar does is, is he calls all the magicians, all the wise men, all the people who like would say, I have the skill of interpreting dreams. He calls them all together to come to him, and he says, hey, if you can't interpret my dream, I'm going to kill you. Here's my dream. And lo and behold, none of these people could interpret the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had. And so what we see then happen is we see that Daniel calls upon Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he says, hey, I have a situation. I think God is going to use me in this moment, and so I want to invite you into it. Daniel then goes on, later part of, of Daniel chapter 2 and verse 24, it tells us that Daniel goes on to Arioch and he interprets King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. At the end of chapter 2, the Bible teaches that Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and it's one of the first moments in this story where Nebuchadnezzar goes, wait, who's this God that you've been faithful to? Who's this God that you changed your diet for? Who's this job that you, that you refused to compromise on behalf of? If you remember last night, we talked in Daniel chapter 1 verse 8 that it says Daniel resolved to remain faithful to God. As a result of Daniel's resolve to remain faithful to God, who, like we talked about last night, is holy, 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 as a result of that, Daniel now has purpose within exile. God has begun to use Daniel to be a light in a dark place, even though he's being oppressed by the system that has enslaved him. Even though Daniel is experiencing something that merits him no freedom, Daniel still steps into the purpose that God has for him because Daniel had his eyes fixed on God the whole time. Remember, the beginning of this story, Daniel is a young man, relative in age to where you sit today. But I think, unfortunately, the time that we live in and the culture that we live in can sometimes be so comfortable that, that we don't see ourselves as people who can make an impact or have purpose until we, like, graduate high school or get married or whatever. But, friend, Daniel in chapter 2 teaches us that God has a purpose for you in the life that you are living right here, right now, today. And it's your responsibility to remain faithful to the purposes of God in your life. God is trustworthy. We talked about that. And so now things get more interesting. In Daniel chapter 3, it goes like this. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high. Six cubits wide. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. 
He then summoned the satraps, the precepts, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all other provincial officials to come up to, to the dedication of this image that he had set up. So the satraps, precepts, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the de- dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before it. So King Nebuchadnezzar gets ahead of himself. He's filled with pride again. After Daniel does what what could be considered very much a miracle in interpreting this dream, King Nebuchadnezzar, instead of going, tell me more about this God and who is he, I want to follow him and honor him, he begins to put the glory back on himself. Power has a way of doing that. And so Nebuchadnezzar builds this gigantic golden statue. And he requires everybody around to come to the dedication of this statue so that they might bow down and worship it. What's the problem with what I just described for you for Daniel? Yes. They're worshiping an idol. Are you familiar with the Ten Commandments? Daniel would have also been very familiar with the Ten Commandments. With the law, with the law of Moses. And so, Daniel, we can kind of see where this story is beginning to go, can't we? It says, then the herald, the herald would be like the, like the guy with the megaphone. His name's not Harold. He is a herald, right? Makes sense. And it says, the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, You must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So so the music's going to play. Like when the band strikes, you fall on your faces and the entire nation's going to do this. It's going to be like the most heavy metal thing ever. It's going to be awesome. And King Nebuchadnezzar's going to get all the praise and all the glory. And your job, the second the music starts, is to fall on your face and worship this idol. Can you think for a second about how that would have felt to be Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Just think for a second. When an entire nation has been commanded to do something that you know is the wrong thing to do, that you know would be a sin in the face of the God who is holy, 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 that that you know would be a sin in the face of a God who, who, who has kept you going this far in exile, look at what it tells us. It says in verse 6, whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So now we have an option. The option is worship the golden idol or get baked in an oven. Fall down on your face when the music starts as a sign of reverence, worship, and respect for King Nebuchadnezzar and his idol or be put to death. Don't answer this question out loud, but think for a second about what you would do in this situation. Think for a second. What would you do as a middle school student, counselor, or a youth pastor? What would you do in this moment? I think it's easy to think, I, well, I wouldn't bow. But take into consideration the sum total of decisions that you've made leading up to today. Have you lived faithful leading up to today? What would you do in this moment when it's now considered law, a law of life or death, to worship this idol? Imagine the fear that would come over you. Imagine how terrifying it would be in that moment. 
Like you, you, you see the guys that are about to blow the horns take a deep breath and their lips go onto the end of that horn and they're getting ready to make the loudest noise that's a signal to you to bow and you know if you don't, everyone's going to see it. I'd like to say that I would be faithful in that moment. But if I'm honest, there's been plenty of moments with a lot less pressure that I haven't been. There's a lot of times in my life where there's no pressure at all and I choose to worship idols. I choose to give my, times to things, my time to things that aren't God. I choose to gratify the, the, the desires of my own self, the things I want to do. Maybe it's gossiping. Maybe it's being undisciplined in my times with the word. Maybe, maybe it's being selfish with the things that God has put into my life. We read on. It says in verse 7, Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the music plays, and multitudes, thousands, tens of thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of people fall on their face out of obedience to this law to worship a golden idol. But at this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of these instruments, right, is to fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. And now they tell on him. Verse 12, but there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the characters that we were introduced at the beginning of this narrative, they do exactly what Daniel did when the, the, the decree to eat certain foods came out. They remain faithful to God in the face of incredible pressure to bend the knee. They remained faithful to God when peer pressure was at a national all-time high, when life or death was on the line, this passage is teaching to us. It says, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or the image of gold I have set up. Now when you hear the instruments, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I have made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? So the king finds out that there are people who did not honor or obey or respect his laws, and it happens to be the people who have been consistently doing this the whole time. And so he says, I'm going to give you another shot. Just picture for a second yourself in that situation. How easy was it the first time? Well, maybe no one will notice. Yeah, maybe the music will be so loud and everyone's face is supposed to be at the dirt. How can anyone notice it was me in the first place? Right, like if I'm Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'm like, well, how did they know we didn't do it? That means they didn't do it either, right? So get out of jail free card. And King Nebuchadnezzar's like, nope, we're doing it again. Band, get ready. One, two, three, play the music. And it tells us 
that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Respectfully and politely, they look at King Nebuchadnezzar and say, this issue has already been resolved in our minds. You remember last night when we talked about Luke 16 where Jesus says, those who are faithful with little will be faithful with much? Like these three guys, this wasn't a moment where they're put on the spot and their faith is put to the test and and they magically choose to do the right thing in that moment. It was a thousand little steps of obedience and faithfulness that had been stacked up to this moment where in the face of death, in the face of one of the most powerful rulers in their world at this time, they can still choose to remain faithful to God. But look at their response here. They say, even if we're thrown into the furnace... We're not going to bow, and if we're thrown into the furnace, we have full faith that God will save us. But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't save us, we're still going to do what's right in his eyes. I think sometimes in church, we have this really misunderstood view of God where we think that God is, is the reward for doing good things. Or sometimes we think God will reward us if we do good things. Right? You remember that thing you learned in science class about the guy who rings the bell, and every time he rings the bell, the dog gets hungry and gets a treat? You ever heard that? Cool. Good example. I'll keep using illustrations that reach the youth. Awesome. All right. So how about this one? <laughs> sometimes, sometimes we, because of the, the, the country that we live in, because of the schools we go to. Like I remember in second grade math class, when I got my, my questions right, the teacher had a little jar of Laffy Taffy on her desk. And if you did a good job on your test, you can go get a candy. Like you were rewarded for doing the right thing, right? Sometimes what we think and what we assume about God is we assume that because we do the right thing, we deserve more blessings from God. Sometimes we think that, that just because we were faithful that God should get us out of trouble, But do you want to know my least favorite promise of God in all of the Bible? My least favorite promise in all of the Bible is found found in John chapter 16. Turn there with me. John chapter 16. This is my least favorite promise in all of the Bible, but it's the one promise that has proven to be true in my life time and time again. John chapter 16, verse 33. John 16, 33. It says this, I have told you these things so that in you, rather in me, you may have peace. Ready for the promise? In this world, you will have trouble. Jesus looks at the end of one of his sermons. He looks at a group of people and he tells them as plain as day, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you're going to face hard things. In this world, death is going to happen. It's as sure as birth. In this world, hardship will happen. In this world, calamity will happen. In this world, trials will happen. 
There are other parts in the New Testament where Jesus promises that those who follow him will face persecution. Persecution could be defined as opposition for following Jesus. Uh, The church that I go to supports missionaries in the country of India. And I was sitting with the director of this amazing organization that operates out of India. He was at my neighbor's house one day, and so I was over there, and we were just talking, and I'm hearing about the country and the work that they're doing and all the things that God's doing on their behalf in this country. And he said, you need to pray for us. And I said, tell me why. And he said, because our governor, like our president, his name is Modi, he hates Christians. And in my head, I begin to think of our own politicians. And I'm like, oh, he's like passing laws that are progressive or like whatever. He goes, no, no, no. We're being actively persecuted. And I go, well, what do you mean by that? And he goes, I work with pastors every day that have their homes burned down. I work with pastors every day who have their their families' limbs or fingers chopped off because they're faithful to God. And I kind of thought it was a joke at first, right? Like this is something you read about in the Bible or, or something you've heard about in a book. Maybe you go to a Christian school and there's a book in the library about like heroes of the faith and missionaries. And he goes, no, no, this is happening today. He goes, and so one of the campaigns that we have right now in our organization is we're trying to raise money for bikes because the pastors who are in our network have their bikes stolen every day because the government knows that if they take their bikes, then the word of God can't go out and it will slow down their ability to disciple the people in their communities because they have to walk too far. And he goes, so what we're trying to do is we're trying to just have enough funds to replace a bike every time it's stolen. He goes on to tell me pictures of people that he knows personally, friends of his, who have died at the hands of a government who is persecuting them because they refuse to lay down the faith that they have in Jesus. What's happening as a result of that oppression, what's happening in India as a result of that persecution, is the church is thriving like never before. Why? Because in this world you will have trouble. But the verse finishes, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Jesus promises to be present with us in the most painful moments of our lives. Jesus promises to walk with us through the good, through the hard, through the best of days, through the worst of days. If you think about it Christmas time, what's like one of your favorite Christmas carols? Anyone have a favorite Christmas carol? Right there. What is it? Jingle bells, great. What about the ones you sing in church? Yeah? Yep. Oh, Holy Night. I love that one. Yeah. What is it? Ten. That's a good one. I don't think I've sung that one at Christmas. That's a good one. Yeah, with the headlamp on. Silent Night's a good one. Yeah. Do you, do you, that's a good one, too. Go Tell on the Mountain. A lot of those are based in, in Scripture. Have you guys ever heard that, that song that starts with... O come, O come, Emmanuel. Yeah, you know that song? You could hear it in your head now, right? We probably have already, like, someone already said that's their favorite, but I don't know what it's called. Um, so, so it goes, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and rescue captive Israel. That, that word, Emmanuel, comes out of the very first page of your New Testament. You don't have to turn here. I'll read it for you. That word, Emmanuel, comes out of the very first page of your New Testament. It says in, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, looking at, we'll start at 22, it says, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Verse 23, the virgin, that's Mary, will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him what? 
Emmanuel. Now, what that doesn't mean and that is that Jesus' name is Emmanuel. They're, they're using a word that, that in this passage isn't translated into English because the word Emmanuel in parentheses next to it in this verse tells us what? That Emmanuel means God with us. God with us. What's happening in Daniel chapter 3 is that the hardship, the persecution, the trial that Daniel, as well as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are going through, is proving this promise of God to be true. What's happening in Daniel, all throughout the chapters that we're going to study this week, is we're seeing a God faithfully show up to a group of people who have been left to the lions and the fiery furnace. And in doing so, we see the promise of God that his name is Emmanuel, that God promises to be with us always and forever to the very end of the age. We're seeing this promise come true as we read this story. Now, any of you who have ever engaged God during a time of hardship know this also to be true, that God loves to comfort us when we're in pain, that God loves to comfort us when we're having a hard time. When we feel lonely and we invite the presence of God in, it's been said by many scholars and many authors that that it's almost like God has a megaphone when we're in times of pain, that the presence of God in our lives has never been more loud than when we're going through a difficult trial. Now, I don't want to assume to know much about your lives, but one thing I think it's safe to assume is that each of us in here has gone through hard stuff. At the same time, I think it's safe to assume that none of us have ever been in a situation where we would be killed for wanting to worship Jesus. In fact, the opposite of true. The opposite is true. Uh, all of you here raised or had your parents pay a pretty ticket to come to this camp. Like it's a privilege for us to pay to go to camp where we can openly and freely talk about these things. And sometimes what happens when we have that privilege is, is we begin to take it for granted. So because we don't face hard things often, our faith begins to look weak at times. Because I don't have to lean on my faith to get through the day like those Indian pastors do, sometimes it's easy for me to waffle or easy for me to be undisciplined in seeking the presence of God in my life. But remember, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart because I have overcome the world. Back to Daniel 3. So they don't bend their knee. It says in verse 19, Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent... And the furnace got so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. What we've just learned is that the king gets so upset at them standing up to him and saying, I'm sorry, but we won't listen to you. We have a king and he ain't you. And so the king gets mad. He says, turn the temp up. Right? Like when your mom's making cookies and she says, can you preheat the oven? And you put it on 200. And she's like, that wasn't enough. You got to put it on 425 so we can have the crispy edges. The king is like, turn the, we're not just preheating now. We are cranking this baby up. 
And it says that it got so hot that the soldiers who were carrying Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace died just from the ambient heat coming out of the furnace. Like the king's rage was so vengeful in this moment that these three men resolved to be faithful to their God and not to him, that the, the anger and the frustration, the hatred gets taken out on his own soldiers. That's a whole nother sermon for a whole nother day. It says in verse 24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, your majesty. Verse 25, the king said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unburned, unbound, and unharmed. And the fourth looks like the son of the gods. The king is blown away in this moment. Why? The king is blown away in this moment, not only because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are untouched by the flame, but because there's a fourth person in the fire with them. And by the king's own account, this fourth person looks like the son of gods. Just think about that for a second. The son of God. Who in the Bible is known as the son of God? And who promises to walk with us when life gets hard and life gets difficult? You're seeing it right here on display. You're seeing the promise of the presence of God to be with us when we face hard things happen right here. Scholars have long debated. Scholars have long written and thought about. Men much wiser than me have talked about what this is. But ultimately, the way that this little verse here is described is known as a Christophany. Meaning this is like one of the first foreshadowings, one of many that happens throughout the Old Testament of God who will come. The first one happens in, in, in Genesis chapter 3, when God promises to send someone whose heel will strike the head of the serpent. We'll talk about that passage tomorrow. But this is just another moment in the Old Testament where we're going, who, who is this fourth person in the fire? Friend, the fourth person in the fire is the presence of God that promises to sustain us when we face hard things. God promises to be with you as you face trials of various kinds. First Peter chapter 6 says it this way. I'll read this one for you. You don't have to turn here. But First Peter chapter 6 says this. Sorry, chapter 1, verse 6. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not now see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible, glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is just one of many New Testament passages that tells us that the fruit of suffering, that the fruit of hardship, and that the fruit of trial in our lives is always more of the presence of God when we resolve to be faithful. Because here's the sober truth. When life gets difficult, this could be an everyday example from your lives. You hear that someone you thought was a good friend of yours was gossiping about you, saying really mean or harsh things. 
Maybe, maybe something even more um, harsh has happened. Maybe, maybe you stood up for yourself when someone invited you to do an activity. Maybe it's someone you're in a relationship with or someone invited you to a party to participate in activities that you know go against your faith. And they tease you for it. They say, oh, you're just a boring old Christian. Someone tries to, to get you to push, to challenge your boundaries. When we have those things happen in us, it's as though a trigger arises. We want to cope with the pain of facing hard things, and we tend to do so through one of two ways. One is to lean on God and remain faithful. Two is to give in to temptation and sin. And that trigger can be met with things like overeating, using drugs, looking at pornography, you name it, fill in the blank. Sometimes we tend to do things as humans to mask the pain that life has caused us. But we're studying a story about some incredible men in the Bible who resolved to not give in to that temptation, but to allow God's faithfulness to be what sustains them through the hardest trial they'll ever face in their life. And as a result of that, we see them grow in depth and relationship with God. And that's so precisely what I hope for all of you. That's exactly what your counselor and your youth pastor wants for you. I remember growing up, hearing testimonies of people in church. Hearing testimonies of people in church that just had like the craziest story, it seemed like. People who were using drugs or had given themselves to prostitution. People who had been beaten or abused. And I remember one time this girl in youth group stood up and she said, that's not my story at all. She said, my story isn't one that's been marked by a life of sin. I was pretty much born in a church. Been here darn near every Sunday since I was alive. And I hope that your takeaway from my testimony is that I'm someone who, when I grow old, was faithful to God throughout their whole life. And sometimes we think we have to hit rock bottom to want to be faithful to God, to want to lean on him in our lives. But friend, that's not true. Wherever it is that you are today, whatever it is that you're facing today, whatever the pain, the shame, the hardship that is waiting for you when you get on that bus and head home on Saturday, whatever that is, God still promises to be with you. And the way that we get to see the fulfillment of that promise when we face trials is through us remaining faithful to God. Through us not running to things to mask the pain. Through us not turning to things that are sinful to make ourselves feel better. But through us facing the pain. Through us facing the hardship because we know that the promise of God is that he is Emmanuel. And that he promises to be with us always to the very end of the age. This quote may go over some of your heads and maybe it's something just write down and remember for later on. Maybe, maybe for some of us it will land home. But there's this incredible preacher who lived just a couple generations ago. His name was Charles Spurgeon. And he once said, and I, I lean on this quote when I face hard things in my life. I shared a little bit about what I'm going through with my mom. I've thought about this quote a few times. He says that I've learned to embrace the waves that crash me into the rock of ages. Meaning pain isn't something that I run from. Pain is something that I allow to push me closer to God because he's the only one that can sustain me in the first place. There's another passage in the Bible where we see people face something hard and they do the opposite of what we've just seen in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In Mark chapter 4, so Mark is the second book of your New Testament. In Mark chapter 4, Verse 35. 
It says, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. You see, Jesus was out doing ministry with his 12 disciples. And just so you're not lost in where we are in the story of the Bible, we're now in the New Testament. This is, this is uh, maybe six to 700 years after the events that take place in Daniel. And Jesus has been teaching all day with his disciples, the 12 disciples. Maybe a little bit more familiar of a group of characters for you to know about. And so Jesus is doing ministry with his 12 disciples. And he gets onto a boat. And he says, let us cross the lake. Let us cross the Sea of Galilee. Verse 36, leaving the crowds behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. And there were also other boats with him. And a furious squall came up. And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. So Jesus ushers his disciples to get into a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. When they get out into the middle of the lake, uh, a storm breaks out. And the waves from this storm are crashing water over the boat. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that, but it's terrifying. Like when you're on a boat with tons of people and the waves pick up, it's awful. I used to go deep sea fishing all the time with my uncle when I was a kid. And my uncle was like a crazy person. Literally, he was a wild man. He's like a bachelor all his life, and he would like catch sharks and, and eat them. Like it was crazy. He was he was awesome, but as an adult now, I go, why did my dad let me spend so much time with him? Right? I don't know if you have that family where you're like, what was he thinking? Like there were times where waves would crash over the boat, and I remember like eight year old me going, this is terrifying. This is what's happening to the disciples in this moment. It says in verse thirty eight that while this storm is happening, while the disciples are on the boat crossing the lake. In verse 38, it says that Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And the disciples woke him up and said, teacher, don't you care if we drown? This is the opposite of a fiery furnace. This is the opposite of the persecution that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had just faced in Daniel chapter 3. This is the 12 disciples in the presence of the Son of God on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And they're terrified it's going to going to sink. After having seen Jesus raise people from the dead, after having seen Jesus turn water into wine, after watching Jesus teach and preach with authority like they had never seen before, this storm has terrified them to the point where they're questioning Jesus's care for them. Remember my story at the beginning of tonight when I talked about getting dumped at a flagpole. The illustration being that I lived a lot of my life thinking that God was just something that was meant for camp, that he didn't care about my everyday life. The disciples are going through a moment just like that right here. It says that Jesus got up and he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked each other, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him. Friends, there's going to be times in your life where it seems like the waves are crashing all around you. There's going to be moments in your life where the intensity of the trials that you're facing as a follower of Jesus seem too much. They're insurmountable. They're impossible to face on your own. I want you to remember that you are never alone. Friend, if you miss the presence of God in your life, you've missed the entire point. The purpose of faith in God is not that we get to go to the good place when we die, not the bad place. 
The purpose of the Christian faith in our lives is that we get full access to Jesus, the fulfillment of all of God's promises. God in human form who was put on a cross to take our sin upon his shoulders so that, so that we could spend forever with him starting today. So that when we face hard things as humans, because again, it's a promise you will, you have God with you. You don't have to turn. You don't have to be scared. You don't have to be terrified. You can have faith and trust that God is with you. I think this passage tonight that we looked at in Daniel 3 is just such a beautiful example of the faithfulness of God in the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So much so that they get to experience the presence of God amidst someone trying to take their own lives. There's nothing that this world can throw at you. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, Jesus has already overcome the world. He promises to be with you. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for these students, for their time, for their attention as we've unpacked this passage together. God, I pray that as we, uh, as we wrestle with these truths, as these students go to cabin time right now, God, I ask that you would allow their hearts to be open to you, that if there's questions that they have as a result of this passage, would, would it just be deep conversation where they get to talk about the place of God's presence in their lives, no matter what they face on this side of eternity. We thank you so much for the story of Daniel, a man who was so faithful to you. And God, we pray that you would help us to be more like you as a result of being at camp this week. It's in your name we pray. Amen.